Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Vented with Sarah Fenton. That's all I got today. It's early on a Friday. That's, I'm tired. That's, that's your rhyme for today? Venting with Fenton. That's what we're doing. You should have a session where you can just kind of bring everybody together and, and they're allowed to vent to you, right, at EQT, and you call it Venton with Venton. Everybody sort of gets it off their chest, right? I don't know. Well, you I know, know I you guys like are innovative. But. I kind of like the idea. You know, culture is a big thing here at EQT, so uh, I, we could do something like that. And I don't know if we have something like that, but uh, culture, culture boosters are pretty important at EQT, so maybe I could work that in somehow. It's a good idea. I like it. Well, we're going we're gonna to start well before EQT. Uh, I know you've had a, a kind of a fun career and, and certainly fun for me to see that you had roots in Denver um, for such a long time and, and doing a, a podcast yesterday with Mark Heineman. Um, it's like, tell Sarah, I said, hi. So you were at Sundance for a minute. But even before that, you lived in Colorado for 15 years. I believe you grew up in, in Michigan or at least went to Michigan Tech. So I want like the full dose. Who, who is Sarah Fenton? Oh man, uh, I guess yeah. It starts back in Michigan. Uh, went up to Michigan Tech for undergrad, and then uh, did a small Are you stint from out originally. Or yeah, yeah. So I was born uh, just north of Detroit. Okay. And then went up to to Michigan Tech for undergrad. Um, actually met my husband in undergrad on a chairlift. Uh, he was a oh, ski controller. Nice. So uh, we've been together. I think this is our twenty third year together, actually. Nice. Um, and then after undergrad, moved out east for a, a little bit, worked um, out there. Uh, my, my claim to fame was I worked for a, a semiconductor um, manufacturing facility and designed uh, the electrostatic diode for the Nintendo GameCube. I don't know if you remember the Nintendo GameCube, but yeah. uh, there's a small component on that board. Uh, very, very small, but that was one of my first projects. But did you get your name on it or anything? I wish I did. I, if I was smarter, I would have done that, but I didn't know. So I did that. And then I headed west. Uh, the skiing was definitely better out west and yeah. uh, came out actually and, and brewed beer. So I was a, a brewing manager um, for a, a large domestic brew house up in uh, Fort Collins. And then uh, went back to grad school, uh, went to Colorado State, go Rams. Yeah. And from there, got into oil industry um, after that with Encana in Denver. What's it like working as a I mean, I know what it's like sitting on in a brewery drinking the beer, but what's it like <laughs> working in a brewery? Oh, it's it's awesome. Um, there's, I mean, brewing itself is is not too difficult, but the uh, scale and the size of a large domestic brew house. I mean, it's it's an engineer's dream, really, when you think about it. From all the heat exchangers, um, supercritical steam, um, and then you go into the food science side with the uh, fermentation and things like that. I mean, that was, it was, it was a ton of fun. I worked with a good group of people, uh, drank a lot of good beer too. And, and you, got to, you, you got to know like the, uh, the local brewers as well. Like um, sure. I remember some of my first experiences was getting to know like Jeff and Kim with New Belgium, getting oh, to know yeah. Doug at Odell's when they were still small. Um, this is a long, long time ago. So there was oh, yeah. a, a local kind of brewers guild kind of thing um, going on in, in Northern Colorado. Um, and then of course, connecting up with, uh, course down in golden was always good. So, um, it was a good time. I learned a lot about beer, drank a lot of beer. Um, I remember I saw on dirty jobs, micro thing. He, he, he went and toured a brewery somewhere and 
I forget what the German word was, but basically everybody had a glass of beer on their desk or somewhere nearby at any point. Was it, was, don't ruin my dreams. Was it anything like that? Oh, <laughs> uh, not, not necessarily while you're working, but I will say uh, nothing left the brew house without us tasting it. There nothing came into the brew house without us tasting it and nothing left without us tasting it. So that includes all the uh, cereal grains, um, all the malt um, we all had to taste. And then of course the teas that go with that. So we'll make teas out of it to understand like the, the flavor profile and then anything leaving also had to be tasted. So, uh, I will say the tasting room was, was great. Um, there's, there's some safety precautions also with the tasting room, such as a breathalyzer, as you can imagine. So you gotta <laughs> yeah. make sure, you know, you're not, you're, you're, you're doing the right thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a, a great thing and a, a nice perk. Man, I just think back. What would, how how great would it have been to graduate and go work there for a couple of years out of school? And just I don't know. That's your oh yeah. So this is working life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that part was really cool because I was young, fresh out of school, probably one of my first leadership positions as well. Um, in addition, they were going through a big expansion also, and so they were kind of switching over, um, or adding like twenty new fermenters as well as switching over their control systems from an older Alan Bradley to a newer Siemens. And so from an engineering controls perspective, that was fascinating too. So not only was I brewing beer and learning how to do that, we were completely doing a, um, I'll call it like a, a modernization of the brewery at the same time. So there was some real cool engineering side of it that was, uh, I, I, enjoyed. And I actually learned a, a lot, um, a lot about, I guess, that side of manufacturing and, and really the yeah. beer biz, the large scale beer biz also. Wow. The, I think that there's some interesting parallels here <clears throat> because the brewery industry, the brewing industry really has taken off over the last 20 years. And certainly where you're at with EQT, you guys have become, uh, I mean, a very large organization. I don't know what the well count is now, but it's probably going to be like 40,000 plus. I mean, it's, it's a ton, right? So, so you've become almost a manufacturing gas company where you just very quickly and methodically go about your process and, and try to m maintain some level of consistency. As it goes with, with the, the brewery and the brewing how do you maintain the consistency? Like that's one of the things that that's always been interesting to me is I love going to the microbreweries here that we have in Colorado. They've popped up all over. Um, Odd 13 is one of my favorites, but one of the things that I like or maybe don't like is the, every batch seems a little bit different, right? Like maybe they got malts from here and the supply chain wasn't right with the hop. So they had to put in galaxy instead of mosaic, right? And, and something's just a little bit different, even with their flagship stuff. How do the big breweries, the macro breweries, maintain the, that quality and that consistency like on a mass scale? Oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So I, I think it starts with the supply chain um, and consistency in your supply chain. And, and it starts with, uh, I'll call it your, uh, your beer design. So at EQT, we have a, a proven standard well design yep. um, for, for different areas that we operate. I would say the large domestics do the same thing. Right. And so it's, it's all about the water and the water quality. Um, obviously the, the raw materials, the grains, um, the malt coming in and of course the yeast. Um, and yep. so there's, there's a few things in there that make sure that it's real, real consistent with the yeast. Um, hence why you're having to taste the, uh, taste the malt when it comes in. Right. That's right. Yeah. You got to taste the malt and, and the malt isn't like, you don't do all the tasting, uh, just randomly there's taste training. So you have to go through taste school and, flavor yep. profile school and every everybody has a different uh 
uh, things that they can pick up and, and, and taste and smell. And so you go through that training, what you're looking for, um, yeah. other things that might indicate you have a, an issue. It's not necessarily bad for the beer, but it might change the flavor profile a little bit. Um, and I think that same idea, that same concept in beer manufacturing, regular manufacturing, even for EQT holds true today, right? Having a good standard design um, and, a, and a proven economic um, design is, is really, I think, can what set you apart because it keeps your costs low, keeps your forecasts accurate, keeps confidence in your type curves and your reserves, right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you don't get to play around with things, of course, right? We see, right. We see large domestic brewers putting new products out all the time. Uh, think about right. a when I was back there, Takiza was the thing. I don't oh my know if God. you guys remember Takiza, but yeah. Takiza yeah. was a thing, oh, right? And gross. that and um and, and Zima. I don't know if you remember Zima. Oh, yeah, well, Zima. Zima. Zima, they just repurposed and now it's the hottest selling thing ever. They just call it like snow melts or whatever, right? You know? <laughs> High yeah, noons. That's right. But you know, thinking about that and, and the way you test that, you can factor a little bit of that in at a time, but your flagship, your standard, that's you know, kind of your bread and butter that's what you hold consistent and then you play a little bit with, with other products. So you can still yeah, you, innovate, right? You can still evolve the way you think yeah. about and maybe find new products or even make your current products better, um, but doing it methodically. So yeah, I guess there is a lot of parallels now that I'm talking to you guys. Probably a lot oh, of parallels see, also, between- You know, implementing the control systems that sets you up for real-time monitoring transition in the oil and gas space as well. Yeah, that, that's a really good point too. You know, one of the things we, we did, the Brewmaster, um, every- I think it was every Monday we would sit down and back, back then it was a, just a whole bunch of transparencies. I don't know. You remember those like slides and transparencies and we would print out KPI charts. Uh, I forget what we called them there, but now I know it's called a key performance indicator, like a a main metric, but we would see how each thing was doing. Maybe it was pH. um, Maybe it was um, uh, water temperature, steam quality, um, things like that. Um, and of course, gravity or balling, you know, how that's trending with time on the different brews and whether it was a, uh, a full body brew or a light body brew, right. It just depends. And so we would look at those. Um, but yeah, having that modern control system allowed us to bring that data right in. Um, not, not so much live, but at least having it and then being able to put it on a plot and print it on a transparency so we could look at it. For those who don't know, a transparency is a see-through piece of paper. You would stick on an overhead projector. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that brings me back to like being in sixth grade when we would do current events on the projector. No, Jeremy, you don't want to know. When I first got into the business doing sales uh, demos and train, you know, trainings and things, we couldn't tell you. So we would walk in with a stack of transparencies and an overhead projector because we didn't know if our client was going to have an overhead projector in the conference room. Yeah. So we have right. to. I, I came in with a dolly. My laptop, my overhead projector, uh, my transparencies, the whole bit. That was it's the early crazy. 90s. It's Well, I mean, that was before, you know, computers were invented, Tim. So the, well, you know, di- dinosaurs were roaming around. Well, so, my laptop I, did not carry over my shoulder, I can tell you that. Yeah, and it, it probably hurt because it yeah. was 20 pounds. Um, so, Sarah, I, I want to talk a little bit about your your time in Colorado. Obviously, I'm here in Colorado. I moved out here sight unseen about 18 years ago. I love it. Um, it. We'll get into Pittsburgh and all that, but but talk a little bit about living here, kind of the things that you liked, and 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 ultimately, um, you know what what drove you to uh, Pittsburgh. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a, a real good question. I think when I made the transition out to Pittsburgh, a lot of my, uh, my, my friends in Denver thought, what are you doing, Sarah? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're you're right. trading Colorado for Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I basically said, heck yeah, I am. Peace out, Denver. Mm. And then the reason I did that, uh, a big uh, thing that obviously my husband and I love is skiing, right? Now yeah. the skiing out here is, is very different, obviously than out West, but you know what? That's why uh, we got airplanes and cars and flights so we can get back out there. Exactly. But here, um, what, what's great about this area, what I love doing out West was trail running, uh, mountain biking, climbing, um, kayaking, stand up paddleboarding, all those yeah. outdoor activities you can do in Colorado. You can do here. Um, there's a, it's almost like a, a little, I didn't know this, but it feels almost like a little hidden gem. And the one thing that is great about Pittsburgh versus Denver shade shade. It's like this luxury right. item, right? I, I, when I lived in Denver, I could never go for a run after work. I'd either have to do it bright and early in the morning or do it real late at night with a headlamp here after work, just about every park around here. And there's a lot of parks, um, has awesome single track and it's shaded. Hmm. And yeah, think- that was, a, that was a real nice feature moving to Pittsburgh. When uh, Jeremy and I, we, we've discussed this on our podcast before, but my first trip to Pittsburgh was years ago. Um, I was surprised not to see the steel town of the 70s when they show the this Pittsburgh Steelers and the, the guy with the gruff voice doing his thing and just smokestacks and everything. It was I was surprised at just how, I don't use the word clean, that's not the right word, but how natural it looked you know and it was it was clean air it was there was no it's not a, just a big industrial wipeout of a city yeah and and you'd have no idea that that this is one of the largest natural gas plays in the world in fact where i live um i, I live in washington county sure. um kind of the core of the southwest appalachia region and i, I live in range resources country. So I have range resources wells underneath me. I got a, I got a, a location, a pad just across the street. You'd have no idea, right. Yeah. That, that we live in this huge, large, very industrial, largest natural gas play in, in almost the world. And I, I'm still out there trail running mountain biking. And it feels like I was, you know, in the mountains or in Denver. Right. Hmm. I mean, it, they've done a real good job with uh, preserving the parks, making sure some of the surface locations you've got places to play. Um, that are close and well maintained, so that that's been a real nice, I would say, consistency between you know the lifestyle I had in Colorado to what I've got out here in Pittsburgh, and I, I was pleasantly surprised. I had no idea, right? And then then when I get out there and I start seeing what's going on, and I talk with some of my uh, friends and my network back in Colorado, and I'm showing them pictures of what I do, they're like, "What? That's not the image that they have of Pittsburgh, and certainly not the image that they have of a typical oil and gas field, right?" Yeah. Um, it's, it's very unique. It's very different than something you'd see out West. I, the, the city of Pittsburgh is missing out there. You don't see commercials for it. They, they're not selling it. It's no one knows that they should move there. <laughs> you know, I, I would agree with you. No one knows. The other thing too, I think that's great about Pittsburgh is, uh, right next door, West Virginia, right? You've got those gorgeous mountains down there. There's a yeah. lot of good, um, rock climbing, mountain biking, um, uh, definitely trail running and, and the golfing. I'm a big yeah. golfer too. Uh, the golfing out here is fantastic. Also just gorgeous scenery. Um, and just East of town is, uh, Mr. Arnold Palmer, his uh, hometown there. So that's, that's kind of cool. A little history there for, for the golfers yeah. listening. Love that. 
Nice. So with, so I, I think you, you moved out there and you left Sundance and took a job with Rice, right? And so this was actually when it still was Rice before it became, before there was the acquisition with EQT and then ultimately the EQT team, uh, the Rice team prevailing and taking over at EQT. So, so what was it like that one year? I mean, it must've been kind of a whirlwind for you to move go to a company, the company gets sold, then you're at a different company, then there's all that sort of like public, uh, I don't even know what to call turmoil, whatever, uh, all the news and then the buzz coming out of the EQT office. What was it like that first like year, year and a half for you when you moved out there? Oh, it was wild. It's probably one of my best memories um, in, the, in my career in oil and gas. You know, when I, when the position came available at Rice, you know, I thought, no way, I'm, I'm not leaving Denver, you know, right. I'll go out there and, and listen to what these guys have to say. And I get out there, I start talking with them and I actually see like what they're doing. And I'm like, it guys, it was drastically different. I, and it starts with culture. All right. right. And the, the key thing with, with culture is, is thinking about how everyone's aligned. And for us, we call it the mission alignment. And just seeing the way um, the, the the rice, I'll call it the operating model, was kind of set up from a mission alignment to um, transparency in data, data structure, um, thinking about working in a good modern way with this digital work environment. It was something I'd never seen before, right? I, mm -hmm. I came from large companies that honestly operated off of spreadsheets, email, um, using a an access database. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking yep. about an access database as a data warehouse, like yep. that type of stuff. Right. And that's what I was used to. And then you kind of come over and you see the idea and the concept that's happening. And it's like, this is the revolution this industry needs. And I want to see it on the train. Um, and so it was, it was a no brainer uh, hmm. when I came over. So when, when I came over, I came out and a little interesting story is I didn't move all the way out. You know, I, I know in general, people are usually on their best behavior during an interview, right? And I interviewed with a lot of folks. It was a full day of interviews. And I thought, well, everyone's always on their best behavior. Before I make a pretty big life change, let's just do this step by step. So I moved out into an apartment, furnished apartment. Um, I think it was a month to month lease or something. And it was within walking distance of the building. And just to make sure before, before the whole crew and everybody came out from Colorado, let's just make sure this is uh, really up to expectations. And I'll tell you what, probably a, probably a month or two in, uh, my husband's like, Sarah, what are we doing? You know, we're going to keep traveling back and forth. You know, is this, is this, is this legit? And I was like, this is legit. So um, he, he gets everything ready, gets, you know, get, takes care of everything back in Colorado, starts getting everything moved out. And you guys know how uh, packing goes. They come in, they pack up your house, put it all in boxes. And the next day the, the truck shows up and they load the truck. Well, house is packed. Uh, my husband is actually on a blow up mattress, um, you know, waiting for the, you know, sleeping on the floor, waiting for the guys to show up with the truck the next day. That morning, that morning, I call him at 530 Mountain Time, 730 oh, no. Time. Rice gets acquired by EQT. Yeah. Wow. Right. And, you know, he's, he, he asked me, you know, is everything okay? I said, yeah, everything is okay. We just got acquired. He's like, do you have a job? I, said, <laughs> I don't know. He's <laughs> like, know <laughs> you, you literally know the whole house is packed up and the, the truck, semi truck's going to be here in like 30 minutes or yeah. like in a couple hours. And I said, yeah, I know. And he's like, what are we doing? And I said, I, it, it, I think it's momentum at this point, you know, let's, let's go. Let's so go. we moved out. We still moved out. 
Um, and we had from June to November um, to kind of, you know, get things in order here. But uh, we all kind of know what happened in November, right? EQT bought us. Um, all of the rice leadership was severed. They, you know, and so we went on our merry way. I yeah. was uh, retired, I guess, maybe on sabbatical yeah. for a little bit. Um, and then now we're all back. There was a handful of us, um, you know, when the, the proxy campaign and everything was going on, that was really kind of handled by, uh, you know, Toby and, and some of the, the, the rice team there. Um, and then when we all came back in, um, asked, you know, kind of to help with this takeover, there was a handful of, we call shillennials, um, right. that were asked to, to kind of come back and help turn things around. And so I was one of those folks and Toby got voted in on a Wednesday, I think. And then on Monday, um, I had a job hmm. and, uh, it was a little daunting at first, but, uh, it was, uh, it's a pretty exciting part of my, my life and my career. And the other side of that too, was while I was on sabbatical or in, re you know, retired or whatever, I was actually getting an executive MBA from uh, university of Oklahoma. They have a real, um, amazing <laughs> program for energy. So I was in that and I'll tell you during the, um, during the, one of my last classes, it was called corporate governance and restructuring. And I thought, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to find this really, you know, that, that, um, like interesting, one of the best classes because I'm watching corporate governance in action, like during yeah, this you're living uh, proxy campaign and everything. And so I thought it was fascinating to really, uh, see it in action and all these business case studies and things we were looking at. I thought, man, this, this, this is a, this is a Harvard business review case study in the making yeah. of this whole oh, thing. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was one of the best times of my life. Stressful. Um, not sure what's going to happen from the move to the acquisition, to the takeover, to where we are now. But, um, yeah, when I look back on it now, I'm like, man, you, I couldn't have planned that any better. Does it feel like like it did at Rice? And I know you weren't there for that long before the acquisition, but nonetheless, does EQT now feel like what Rice felt like before? Yeah, that's that's a really cool that's a that's a really cool question. So, I, you know, the the key thing is when we came back in, um, we 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 basically changed out the board, uh, changed out the executive team. And then yep. changed out the department heads okay. and, but all the other, you know, all the other EQT people, they, they were here. And so it was just with that small change that we went from a place that was not a nice place to work to being voted top workplace in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, just what felt like it felt like overnight, but it, it was definitely about a year in the making, but just from a culture perspective where EQT was before versus now Very drastically different. different. And I'll say it's probably even better than what we had at Rice. Um, we, we've, we've got, um, there, there's some new tech out there that's made things a little yeah. easier for us. Um, the, you know, we've got scale on our side too, which as a, as a reservoir engineer, I love that because then you get to play with a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you got your standard design and then you can play a little bit. So from a scale perspective, it's great. So um, yeah, I would say it's probably even better than where it was at Rice. And that's, that's, I mean, and Tim, you remember this too. I actually remember being in Pittsburgh with you at one point when I went out to visit Rice when they were in, I guess, Cannonsburg area. The the contrast in cultures was was very stark, right? Like you go to EQT and it was very buttoned up and and you know, had that remnants of a hundred year old company that also is a utility, that's also a midstream company, right? That's just like died in the world Pittsburgh. And then you go to Rice and there's there's music playing, right? And and people are high fiving. I mean, literally people have cool titles. They made up 
Yeah. The, what is of it? Reserves Ryan, or something? That, Ryan Canta. What was he? Was the yeah like, Ryan Canta? I can't remember. What he engineering commander or something like that. Yeah, commander of reserves. That's what he had on his yeah. card. No, it was it was uh, it, it it was just such a, a stark contrast. So having had that experience and seeing both of them, I'm like, oh man, like. From the outside, sure, it's just you know a, a, a merger of natural gas companies, but it's like, man, these two companies could not be more different, right? Yeah. Whether it be the age or the the style or the culture or the technology adoption, right? The pace just very different. That doesn't mean that that EQT was wrong for how they did it. It's just sort of how they did it, and I think this natural evolution with sort of that rice culture is is surely a positive for not only the city but but for the organization. I think the industry too. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a really cool observation because when you think about um, when you think about what makes an employee happy, right? Um, w- winning, we're always focused on winning. Winning right. is fun, and winning is happy. Um, so we love winning. How do you define winning? Well, you just you you set what good looks like and what you're going to measure, right? And so that kind of goes back to our mission alignment. So having that strong mission alignment, as well as um, you know what our core values, uh, teamwork heart, trust, evolution, and winning. And then when we think about the core values, we think about also making sure those are all aligned, but also the transparency behind what does good look like? Um, A a key thing too, we always talk about for being happy, a happy employee is like productive, challenged, and recognized. So productive, they're working on stuff that matters. How do you do that? You do that with the mission alignment and it starts with Toby. Right. He's got his mission alignment, what he where he wants to take the strategy of the company. And then each of his department heads then find their piece in there and expand it for their role. And I run our asset performance group, which is a a different name for you probably have never heard this title for the division, but it's basically geology, reservoir engineering and reserves. So all those functions kind of come together in one area, which is great for consistency and and continuity and analysis and and the the team dynamics. Um, So then you think about, all right, we got the mission alignment. We're all going to, I know what I'm going to do for the department. And then we're going to write it for each role. So every person has one and what they're responsible for. So now they know that they're tied to the higher purpose and they can see themselves in their boss and their boss's boss. So with our productive, their challenge, what they're working on, some of it's easy, some of it's not. You got to be thinking through it, but defining what success looks like and what good looks like makes it real clear for them. These are the milestones. Um, here's the first, second, and third step. So there's a, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. And then the third piece is recognized, right? So yeah. we love recognizing each other and celebrating each other when we're winning. And we'll do that through shout outs. Uh, we'll do that through a, a badge program. Um, we'll do that through different culture booster events. We have a, a thing for, uh, it's basically a menu of things we do to boost culture. A good examples are, uh, of course, happy hours, um, maybe yeah. trivia nights, um, even, you know, doing talks with Toby. One of the great things that he does for the company is, you know, after our, we had an earnings call yesterday, after our earnings call, he'll jump on the WebEx and have kind of an all hands meeting where people can ask him questions and he's mm. live. It's like those type of um, sessions where you can connect directly with some of the executives and just brings a lot of transparency to what we do. Um, And so I think those three things combined with the mission alignment is really what makes EQT great. It's that culture side of things. Um, I'm a big proponent of the culture. I've I've been in those. uh, I'm sure we all have. We work for those companies that maybe didn't have the best culture. 
Sure. Um, and it was, it's tough. It wasn't fun working there and you don't see people high five and you don't see music playing. Right. Right. Um, right. Y- you do now. Right. At EQT. Mm. And so that's, um, it's real important to me. And I think EQT has a, an awesome culture. It's like one of our, I feel like it's a little bit of a, it's a little, little secret, like our secret weapon. Um, like, man, I want to go work at EQT. No. Well, it's not lucky you're selling it pretty good to me. <laughs> now, on the other side of winning, though, though Jeremy and I are kind of on the sales side of things. Uh, of course, I had a project going with EQT when the whole uh, retake over by Toby was going on. And I was kind of like, I kept getting told, no, nah, it's, it's not likely to happen. Let's just keep pressing forward. And of course, you know, we're watching and then I'm at a conference. Nope. We're all in a panic here now. The boats. <laughs> It's it's uh, everything's changed. We're, we don't know anything. So that was kind of a that was an interesting time. I think Jeremy even had got caught up on bo- you were doing work on both sides. I think. Yeah, I forget which which side I wanted to prevail, but it was just more fascinating to watch, really, from the outside. And yeah. I think it was like around the same time as the uh, Kimmeridge and and PDC stuff too, where they were sort of pulling a a similar card, um, which which was also kind of um, kind of fascinating. And that one was was right under my nose out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Elliot QEP was happening at the same time. Yeah. There right. was the Elliot QEP, the Kimmeridge PDC, right. Rice EQT. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was, a, it was an awesome time to be in corporate governance and restructuring. Work, <laughs> <laughs> that's when, that's when you want to learn. Um, I, I want to talk about ESG. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. I, I think one thing I wanted to touch on with EQT, and this came up yesterday in one of the podcasts I did, um, you guys are a hundred percent remote now at EQT, which, which is, this is a big evolution. I'm sure some people are listening being like, so what big deal? This is, this is a big deal because oil and gas companies just simply don't do this. So can you kind of walk us through the evolution of, of what changed and, and is this the play going forward? Yeah. I, so I, I think this is a, this is a really cool thing that EQT does. And it's, I think it's pretty unique, like you said, for our, for our industry. So um, you know, kind of going back to the way we worked at Rice and some of the tech that we have, what, what's kind of crazy is the way we work, and we call it our digital work environment, right? There's a combination of enterprise apps, software, as well as the kind of the way we work. Um, Salesforce is our platform. You've heard yep. kind of Toby talk about that. Now we have customized it for ourselves and the way we work, but that tech, we, we had it at Rice. Um, we, we actually demoed it for EQT. They had it for two years and never used it. Yeah. Um, so when we came back in, we kind of got that going. I think it was that approach, and maybe I'll just call it our IT strategy, a real, a good, a good strong IT strategy kind of laid the foundation for when COVID hit and when we're forced to work from home, right? We were forced to kind of go back. Um, that really set us up for success. We were connected. Um, it was real easy to stay in communication, to get work done and track performance and make sure we were winning, right? Everybody's kind of tied to their crew metrics. Now we didn't have crew metrics at the time, but we had kind of all of our insights set up so we could take action and we would have triggers to let us know, Hey, there's an issue. Someone look at this. Oh, we need this analysis. It was, I think that framework, that foundation that we built that when COVID hit, it was, uh, it was just natural. We're like, okay, cool. We're at home. Yeah. I got to get a little setup. I got to get a light. I got to get a camera. I got, you know, make sure I get a good comfy chair. And a lot of the, um, the equipment that we had in the office, we said, if you guys need something at home, put in a ticket. We'll either ship it to you. If you're local, you can, we'll meet you in the plaza garage, you know, safely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can pick up a chair or whatever you need, yeah. right? And really make it um, 
you know, make your home work environment good. And then here's what I think was awesome. This is another uh, glimpse into our culture. We would take a survey of the, the workforce, right? And we, we would do surveys, not all the time, but maybe a couple times a year where we say, hey, how are you guys feeling about working from home? How do you feel about how EQT is handling COVID? Um, and really get some honest feedback. And it's a new, it's a um, anonymous survey. And what we found like early on, and I'm going to, these are rough numbers, but early on when COVID hit, you know, said, you know, we took a survey, do you guys, how do you feel about working from home? Do you want to go back to the office? What's your thoughts? And what does that look like? I think um, 80% of the people said, I never want to go back. Mm. We're like, whoa. But there was some uncertainty there with COVID, vaccines, how it's all going to play out, right? We were just like, "Eh, I feel more comfortable at home. Great. Well, we knew we were still hitting our metrics, still doing all that, right? So at that that time, um, we, what were we going through? I'm trying to think back. That was 2020. That was probably summer of 2020, maybe fall of 2020. Uh, we were working on Chevron, right? We acquired Chevron Appalachia and closed right. on that December 1st. So here we are from our basements, guest bedrooms, kitchen tables. We're doing big deals. Yeah. Um, and, and, and frankly, like crushing it. And we're like, all right, so this is working. So then mm. we, we asked the team again, come out maybe six months later and, and said, you know, how are you guys feeling? Because we were trying to take this quarter by quarter. That's tough to plan, especially for parents. Right. Yeah. They want to know, do I need daycare? How do I work all this? And it, a lot of things right. were up in there with schools and, and daycare facilities. So we said, all right, let's do another survey. How are you guys feeling? You know, do you want to come back to work? If you do come back, what, what does that look like for you? What would make you feel safe? Um, half of the people said, I never want to go back. The other half said, yeah. I'd go back once a month. <laughs> people love working from home, right? They yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, so if they love it and we're still winning. Why wouldn't we? Right. Yeah. So even during that time, then we do Ulta, right? We did the yeah. big Ulta transaction again from our basements and guest bedrooms. So we're doing big deals. Um, there was other, some, some other financial transactions that are happening again from this, this happens to be my guest bedroom um, and doing all these deals, crushing it. And, and people are happy. They like that flexibility. Yeah. And so we, we made the call to work from, let's see, work from just about anywhere indefinitely. Um, and that, you know, what's great about that as a leader now, you know, the, the job market's tight. Now we can get access to talent yep. from just about anywhere. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, and, and like you, you guys interviewed uh, Jose, we just scooped up Jose um, and he's there in Houston. Um, just added another member to the team named Johan. He's, uh, he's in Houston as well. Yeah. Um, and I- then of course, some of the Alta folks, right. We've got a, a couple folks, um, Richard and Jeff that came over from Alta there in Houston. So now we've got this good diverse work group, yeah. um, which also brings diversity of thought, which is great. Um, and so from a leadership perspective, the talent that you can attract with remote work just skyrockets. It Where really before, does. We were, we were somewhat yeah. beholden to folks that wanted to be in the Pittsburgh region, you know, and, and for people that are rooted in Oklahoma or Texas or Colorado, that's tough, right? They got their connections, their community, their family there. Um, and, and so now with remote work, it just opens things up. And so it's been, it's been, uh, it's been a really cool experiment, but I'll tell you what, people love it. And it's just another uh, indicator of some of the forward thinking that we've got here at EQT um, and, and really the, the modern way of working, which, exactly. is, which is really empowering for people. Okay. So let me, let me play old school guy for a second. So you know, there's always that argument. Yeah, it's great to be remote, but sometimes we really just need to be together 
for something. Is that still, do you guys foster gatherings like that? Or how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, this is a good question. So early on when the, you know, there were some rules and some guidelines, let's say from OSHA kind of prohibited that, right? We still wanted to all be safe. Um, as those start to relax. Yeah. For folks that are here, we typically will get together. If there's a work project we have to get together for. All right, cool. Like a, a good example was there was a SPE society of petroleum engineers event. And it was uh, some modeling on, oh, some, uh, I think it was like value or how to optimize value or something. And I, I really wanted to kind of see that. And so the team, we, at least myself and some of my sub-department heads, we did get together. And it was cool to see each other. It was cool to kind of sit in on that session because it wasn't virtual. Um, other things are like, we are planning like a team event where we fly up folks from Houston um, to get everybody together. But here's a real cool thing that we've got. To kind of uh, simulate the water cooler talk or, you know, when you would walk by somebody's office and just like catch up or like, hey, I just got a, a quick question for you. Uh, we're, we're using a cool tool to do that. I don't know if you've heard of a gather town. Yeah. So I, I just heard cool. about this this week. I forget who uh, uh, Jake Corley at Wildcatters was was talking about. So, so what is it, Tim? You haven't heard of this, have you? That's new to me. Oh, yeah. So think. um Super Mario Bros. Think Legends of Zelda, maybe like that type of graphics. You have a little avatar. Um, it's it's basically this. It's WebEx, but you can walk your person over and and you can go say, oh, I I see uh you know I see Jose or Zangle are sitting there. I'm gonna go talk with them about a couple things. Just got a couple quick questions. Or myself, I'll just go hang out at the breakfast bar, put my little avatar at the breakfast bar, and I'll be working away taking care of stuff. But if people have a question, they can just come over real quick instead of like scheduling 15 minutes on my calendar with hmm. a WebEx, right? So really trying to simulate that uh, ad hoc water cooler style has sure. been really cool. Um, and so we're, we're still kind of learning the etiquette. And, you know, I obviously wear these. So sometimes I can't hear people when they talk to me, but I will hear a little voice like, oh, I can hear when I put them on my desk and hear somebody talking and I pick them up I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? Um, and huh. so that part's really cool too. That was a new feature that came out um, actually as part of our culture survey. So you guys probably know mo most companies take a culture survey, right? Every year they'll sure. ask you to do this anonymous third party thing. And then it kind of goes nowhere, right? You never kind of hear what happens. You never actually kind of see the data. Or if you do, it's kind of, you know, HR just tells you. We take a different approach at EQT. So that third party survey, we take it to heart. Um, and we like to see general themes. We, we don't get all the results, of course, but we get themes and kind of where we're ranking on certain things and maybe how we've moved year over year. One of the things that wasn't great yet at EQT was some of the meetings. And we did have a lot of meetings uh, when we all went virtual. We were trying to figure out how to get a hold of people. Yep. Gather was one of those solutions to help us with minimizing the formal meetings and bringing back the informal quick water cooler, one second, five minute questions type of stuff. So it really kind of stemmed out of some of the culture surveys and, and listening to what folks were saying and doing something about it, like taking action. That's interesting because I remember I left Slumberjay to go work for Spotfire back in 2000. And it was, it was a, hey, you're going to work from home remotely. You're, if you're not in Boston, you're all remote. Okay, great. And I remember telling somebody, I'm so much more efficient at home. Well, it would take me eight hours in the office yeah. I can get done at three hours. And I said, well, what do you miss? Or how, how is that? And I said, because of all the distractions you have in the office, you know, the water cooler stuff and all that. So what do you miss? Well, I miss all those distractions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, just a couple guys talking about, you know, 
the Astros game or whatever out in the hallway and you go get in there and you start talking about it. So those are the things that are, you know, that I would kind of miss. And I, I miss that now, even though I, I'm, no. I'm uh, committed to hundred percent remote. I see no reason to go back into the office. Um, I just moved my office to different parts of the, the house, apparently. So, <laughs> you know, Tim, Marsha and I talked about this at one point um, when both of us were working from home consistently and I just, you know, you almost become like a, like an introvert, right? Like all of a sudden you sort of curl up in your own little shell. Like I don't need to, to go out. I like this. Oh, I don't need to make phone calls. I'll just send an email. And then all of a sudden you become this like recluse almost. Right. So it's good to have these sort of forced social situations. Um, otherwise you just start to like, like go very inward and, and become less productive sometimes. Right. Yeah. So it can go, it can go both ways. Um, I want to jump into ESG a little bit because this is a, certainly a hot topic right now. Uh, and I see that you guys do some of the, uh, you know, certified natural gas and, and all of that good stuff. C- can you talk about what the, um, you know, what ESG means to you guys as an organization and how you feel like you're being proactive with the, you know, what we could see down the road? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we think about ESG, you know, ESG, environmental, social and governance, Right. Um, so thinking about the governance, the, those are the, kind of the rules at which a company operates or like the guidelines that they operate by. Um, one of the key things I think when we think about or an, an easier, more tangible one is you look at our board, right? When we completely switched out the board, um, we brought in um, a whole new mix of diversity of thought as yeah. well as, um, you know, a, a blend of uh, females and males, right? Yep. Typically, yep. you didn't see that. You certainly don't see that in oil and gas, right? And so now we've don't. got a, a female dominated board which nice. is awesome. And some really impressive board members. Um, I, I, every time I meet with them, I'm always impressed with their engagement, uh, their questions, and certainly their, their background, right? They really bring some cool ideas and thoughts to, to help us and guide us in the right direction. So I think we're kind of forward thinking there on the social side of things, right? A social is kind of what you're doing for your community, your stakeholders and culture, right? I'm a stakeholder, just like a shareholder is a stakeholder, just like a a royalty or a, a mineral owner, or a landowner is a stakeholder. And so for us, one of the key things for me is that culture side of things. And so we, we've already talked a ton about culture and the way we work. Sure. And then obviously on the environmental side, right? Some of the, the biggest things we're doing, some of the bigger needle mover things is pneumatics, right? Everyone yeah. seems to be talking about this, but for us as the largest natural gas producer, you know, I think we've got almost, I think at this point, four to 5,000, uh, producing wells yep. between horizontals and of course some verticals in there um, in a couple different regions over three states, a lot of pneumatic devices. And so where yep. our, our production team is actually, uh, it, it, it's amazing to watch them work, but all the transition that they're doing from some of the, the, the gas driven pneumatics to the air driven. And that, that is the biggest component to some of our emissions. So when we kind of get ahead of that with the, some of our proactive approach, I think that makes us a little bit um, kind of ahead of the game. But then also when you think about our net zero, right, we, we put a, a recent thing out for, um, you know, unleashing US LNG. And yeah. we talk about that, right? We want clean, reliable, cheap, and net zero. Right. The, the energy company, it's a race. The energy company that gets there first yep. wins. Yep. EQT has a plan to be net zero in three years. Wow. Okay. Now, not to put it into perspective, our peers 
are estimating 20 to 30 years. Right. We're going to be able to do it in three. And, and it's not to just show how quick we can do stuff, but it's really to highlight how fast we can evolve to the yep. changing requirements, right? It used to be just cheap, reliable, and clean. Now we got net zero. Yeah. And we're well on our way do, to do that, right? And so those those are a couple other things we think about EQT, ESG, um, and some of the forward thinking and really where we're at almost leaps and bounds above some of our peers. Um, but I will say it starts at the top, right? It starts with respected senior leadership. And a lot of these ideas and concepts really come out of that that executive team. So I've been real proud to work for that team um, and, and really kind of help execute some of their strategy on that ESG front. So, yeah. so net zero in three years—that's that's a that's a challenge. Lofty. Of course, there's a lot of what goes into the calculation, but with all the compressors and everything else that you guys have out on locations and pipes and all that, how are yeah. you going to achieve that? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. So, um, most of the time, you'd think, oh yeah, you got compressors. What about my frac crews? What about my drill rigs? All that stuff. Yep. Yeah, those are emitters, but they're nothing compared to our pneumatic devices, right? That's the needle mover, and that's where our focus is right now. Mm. The other side of it is what we call our corporate ventures side. Corporate ventures, we've been pretty active and kind of talking about what we're going to do there. Um, some really cool projects around hydrogen and real cool projects mm. about carbon capture. Yeah. So there is some tangible um, projects that for us need to be sustainable. And sustainable means profitable, all right? So we've got a few things that align with that net zero to help us kind of mitigate that carbon component and our carbon footprint um, while making money for our, our stakeholders as well. So that's in general how we're doing it with the pneumatic devices and some of our corporate ventures that we've got uh, going on right now. So it's, it's pretty exciting. The digital wildcatters went up there and did that documentary with Toby about with the farmers. Is that yeah. part of the strategy? Um, that part of the strategy... I don't think so. I don't think I kind of talking about cow and cow manure. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know if that's on our, on our uh, docket for, for corporate ventures. Most of it right now has been kind of around the hydrogen and the carbon capture side of things, but it's an interesting concept. I feel like I read, is it, is it Chevron or Oxy that's doing something with that? Well, there are a few companies that are doing it. My, and this yeah. is just, I don't want to advertise my brother's company, but that's what he does is uh, recycle. We, we joke that he, recycles cow farts, you know, and, uh, puts, they have a, they clean it, pipe it to a, uh, filling station and have natural gas filling station. That's impressive. I, I, I don't know about that one. I'd, I'd have yeah. to follow up with that, but I don't know if that one's hit our radar yet. <laughs> That's the next phase. So, That's so I, phase. I, I really appreciate you coming on today, Sarah. I, I think you have a, a great deal of passion. I think you are a great representative of your organization's brand. Um, Tim, we've talked about this before too. Like I want to find more women in the industry that, that we can show and, and sort of showcase on this pod because, because people like Sarah, like you're a, you're, you're a shining example for younger women that may want to get into the space and what's, you know, really kind of like a testosterone filled male dominated industry. What advice would you have for yourself like 20 years ago or to a young woman that's looking to get into oil and gas right now? Oh man, you know, I get, I asked that, get asked that question a lot. And I think it changes, um, every year, depending on what's kind of going on. I think right now advice to give, um, invest in yourself, right. Um, make sure that you're, uh, you kind of surround yourself with good like-minded individuals, right. 
So folks that maybe are aligned with STEM, science, engineering, um, kind of stay focused on that. And then, um, find some good mentors. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get here and where I'm at today alone. I had a, a whole support system to do it. Um, I've got a couple great female mentors that um, also had gotten to certain levels in the organization that I rely on as like a, a, a like a personal board of directors, someone I can sure. do a sounding board on with with career and ideas. Um, that that has been really beneficial. Uh, one of them, I actually kind of call her my fairy godmother a little bit, um, just because we've actually never worked together. I met her through an event. Um, but she's someone that I kind of rely on for professional advice. So having that good network, that good personal board of directors um, has been really helpful for me, um, certainly as a woman and in a male dominated industry, you know, but I've, I've never actually felt that. Um, I, I know hmm. people say, oh, you know, Sarah, you're the only, you're, you know, the only one over there doing this or not many women. And I, I guess I know I don't really see it that way. I just see us as all engineers and scientists because that's the yeah. kind of the, the division I run. Um, and we have got a good mix of folks on there, both in backgrounds um, and, and male and female. So I never really saw it that way. But I, I guess for for yeah, young women coming in, um, invest in yourself and get that good network of like-minded folks. Um, and I think those two together can be real powerful for you. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Well, Sarah, this is fantastic. Where can people find you? I know you're somewhat active on uh, LinkedIn. Is that the best place for people to kind of follow you? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely gotten a little more active on LinkedIn, certainly as we start uh, the, the, you know, with the Unleash US LNG campaign and yeah. one of the really the largest green initiative on the planet. Um, it's important for people to understand the facts. There's a, there's a great white paper out there that we put out um, full of information. Uh, a lot of it comes from the EIA and making it relevant for us and, and, and the US and then thinking about it from a global and a holistic perspective, what that sure. looks like. But most of that, yeah, you can just find me on uh, LinkedIn, Sarah Fenton, probably search Sarah Fenton at EQT, probably. Maybe they ought to bring you in as the new spokesperson for EQT, because I say what, I want to put an application in. <laughs> you know what? We're always looking for the best and brightest. <laughs> it's uh, VentonWithFenton.com. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> no, this has been great, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.